Well, we are continuing our look through the Psalms, and we do have a fairly, it's a pretty short psalm really today, but it makes up for it in what is uh, emotional and spiritual depth. I've lived with this psalm all week, and it's quite a heavy one. I do want to say, uh, if there's things that are thrown up for you, um, Cass and I and Sally will be over here later if you want to pray with us about anything. Take that as a serious opportunity if something comes up for you. But how, about I, how about I pray, because I think I need God's help. Our Father, we're so thankful that, that your word touches even the darkest places of our experience. That there is no place where you cannot reach us. Father, we pray now that this word would form us and enable us to carry the burdens that we find ourselves with in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A name you probably don't know is Nicholas Wolterstorff. Anyone? No. Um, He's on screen, hopefully, in a second. Uh, He's someone who's written some fantastic books. Uh, He's an American philosopher, a Christian philosopher. Uh, He's written about justice on the one hand, and he also has written about the way that God speaks in the world. I'm halfway through one. It's quite nerdy. But I actually have have read one of his books, uh, and I think it has a far better and deeper impact, in fact, than his deeper, more theological works. Uh, For Nicholas, uh, sometime during the 70s, got a phone call in the night about his son, uh, 25-year-old in Switzerland, uh, who that day hadn't returned from a solo climbing exposition, but had instead been found dead at the bottom of his climb, having fallen. Uh, That was something that really shaped the rest of his life, Nicholas's life. Uh, Day after day, as the seasons wore on, as the funerals came, as he even went to Switzerland and picked up his son's half-written thesis and read it, uh, he wrote laments in a book that kind of detailed all the contours and the landscape of his grief in all its colours and all its textures. Uh, And you can find them in a fantastic book called Lament for a Son. It's worth a read. It will make you feel very sad. But the reason why I think this book is so brilliant is because in its, in its pain and yet its honestly, honesty, it's able to articulate for us that something our culture has lost. In the age that we live in, grief and pain are things that we find it hard to express. Often the language we use around medical illness and difficulty is that of conflict, that we will conquer, that I'm battling this illness and I'm going to win. But when sickness rolls on and on, as it does for the psalmist today, we have no vocabulary, we have no ability to know how to endure. The language of the psalms The language of lament gives us that. Here's an excerpt from from Nicholas's book. How is faith to endure, O God? When you allow all this scraping and tearing on us, 
you've allowed the bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped. If you've not abandoned us, explain yourself. It's with these raw words of honesty that the book drips. And in the same way, the Psalms drip with these honest words. And it's not simply that the Psalms of lament as they're known reflect our experience alone. They're meant to kind of form our experience of despair. They're meant to name the silences that our suffering has created. And so we want to enter into Psalm 13 today. In the first portion of the Psalms, you see David beset by all his illnesses, his enemies, and his sin. And each of them has a different texture of lament and pain expressed. And today we have Psalm 13. And Psalm 13, friends, is an invitation. It's a summons to you to question, to cry out, and to draw close. Let's have a look. Actually, before we say that, I just want to say uh, that I'm aware when I talk about a psalm about suffering that there are people in the room who've suffered much more than I have, who've, some have even suffered for longer than I've been alive, which is longer than you think. But still, I want to own that and say, I, I, can't, I, I can't know what you've experienced. But I can tell you that this is a psalm that I know off by heart because of the number of times I've used it. And so I want to invite you into that today. First of all, we see in Psalm 13 that David questions, how long, how long, how long, how long? Did you catch that? That question? question of not simply an ordeal or a circumstance that's pressed in on David, but something that goes on and on and on, that despite calling out to God, God won't answer. Will you forget me forever? It's true that the length of time of something can make it excruciating. You know, a stone in a foot for an hour is nothing compared to a day. When suffering stretches on, it wearies the soul. It kind of keeps you low. It almost like it dehumanizes you. I think of my friend uh, who's had such chronic back pain um, that he can't sleep ever. Uh, he, he says, yeah, I, and he told me once, I remember a good night's sleep, kind of like a, a long lost land that I was once at, but can't really remember or like a long lost friend I once knew but now I have no idea I think of my friends uh, who have suffered a grief in their life and that grief is never leaving them it haunts them every day think of my friends who suffer chronic fatigue who struggle to get out of bed every day just because their body won't allow them that is what this psalm is about and everyone has a how long don't they Something that stretches through, that pushes us down into darkness. How long will I suffer this illness? How long will I feel alone? How long will this relationship fail? 
How long till I have a child? How long will I be afraid? How long till these people come home to God? How long till the poor aren't hurt and savaged? How long will God's people be slain? We all have a how long. And the invitation here is to openly bring that question to God. To bring it to him in all its rawness and roughness and pain in all your honesty. As you kind of move in those first two verses, you see the effect that this circumstance has on David. He feels abandoned by God. He feels forgotten in verse 1. He feels like God is hiding his face from him. When God makes his face shine upon you in the Old Testament, you have a sense of his favor, of his goodness, of his pleasure upon your life. It's like David is saying, this this circumstance, as it stretches on and on, I have this palpable sense that God is absent, that he is neglecting me, that he is uncaring, that he is distant, that I am left here in the darkness. You have to own that when it comes, friends. That feeling, I don't even know how it can be a feeling, but it is, isn't it? That God actually isn't there. That he's left you. Not only do we get that sense of spiritual absence, but we move on and we get a sense of the psychological wrestle within David. How long will I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? These circumstances don't just bring a sense of spiritual abandonment. It's like they press in on his heart. They press in on his self. They, they build up this sense of inadequacy, a sense of just being lost, rudderless, a sense of being pushed down, a sense of being tormented and afraid. How long will you leave me with this mind that is just all over the place and is in constant grief? It's only then in verse 2 that he actually gets to the circumstance. His enemy triumphing over him. David comes and lays out the full agony of his soul before God. He questions him. He names his absence. He names the full doubt and wrestle and brokenness of his condition, all its inward despair, all its complications. Friends, will you hear this? It's an invitation to you. God has given you this word that you might speak to him from the depth of your soul, from the very core of the broken stuff of your life story. He wants to hear that from you. As he heard it from David, he gave you this word so you might know. The Lord Jesus himself did this, you know, in the garden when he wasn't sure. He took the words of lament on his lips as he died. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Christ lamented, so we are called to. In whatever that means for us. I actually find in my prayer life that sometimes I can't pray until I do this. If there's a sadness or a circumstance that is really pressing in on me, 
I can't actually get to the stuff I want to pray to until I honestly go to God. Listen, this is what's going on, and I don't know why you're doing, not doing anything about it. I don't know why you feel so absent from me. And it's only then that I can move to pray. God wants to hear from you, friend. But David moves on from that. And out of this dark questioning comes a very honest and very direct petition. He cries out to God. And I was thinking about this during the week, and I met this week my seventh niece and nephew, you know, that category of thing. That's not him. Um, The first photo we got of him was actually really ugly. (laughs) Wasn't it, Cass? This this is a much cuter-looking baby, although the second photo was cuter, so you know. But what reminded me meeting um, little Isaiah was just the beautiful simplicity of a newborn. Even a two-year-old has some baggage, right? Even they know how to kind of lay on the the words and the circumstance and they know who to play. But a newborn, right? Simple, one-direction cry. That beautiful call out for help. It's intimate, it's urgent, it's direct, and it's in relationship. And as I thought about him this week, I thought of David as well, because that's how David moves forward now. He calls out directly, urgently to God in relationship with him. You see it in verse 3. It's quite simple. Look on me and answer. Pay attention to me. Look at me. Stop being so far away. He says, Lord, my God, here's a sense in which he's in relationship with this God and he's feeling neglected and he's saying, can you just turn back to me? Make me feel your presence again. Make me feel that you're actually here and I'm not all alone in this. Look on me, but also answer. You've got to come down here and fix this. You've got to get down here and and get amongst it. I think this is a really helpful thing. It's quite simple, but it's helpful. I think sometimes we feel guilty when we have a shopping list and we bring it to God and we kind of think, I, I want to pray for these things, but I feel like I shouldn't just pray for things. That feels bad. And, and I guess kind of there's something to that. But I want to say, take your shopping list and make it more like David here. Don't make it just ticking things off before God. Make them things that burst out of your heart, direct urgent, relational, crying out to him. It's an invitation to that, this psalm. David's quite uh, blunt about it. Listen, give light to my eyes or I'll die. Help me or you won't hear my voice again. There's something that needs to be dealt with and David just calls out for it. It gets even worse, I think, in verse 4. David's concerned even more, more than his death of what his enemy's victory might mean. My enemy will say, I've overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. And, and really, there is a lot on the line when we're talking about King David. He is God's Messiah. He is the chosen king. He is the one who brings about God's purposes in the world. And for someone to lay him to the earth and thrust their sword through him is to thrust a sword through the very purposes of God. To call God's nature and God's promises into question. David knows that everything is on the line. And what do you do when everything is on the line? 
you cry out. You cry out to God. That's what you're called to here as well. Your heart to God. Simple as that. A reflexive cry from your circumstances, from the depth of your person, is what God wants to hear. But I think the really deep and remarkable part of this psalm is really the last two verses. And every time I get to these, man, they move me. Because these aren't verses that come after a change in David's circumstances. There is no change here. There are some psalms where, you know, the psalmist goes, this is really bad, you really need to help, oh good, you came and help, let's party. There are those types of psalms, right? But that's not this psalm. This psalm is, where are you? Come help. And then it goes on and on. The how long? It rolls on and on and on. Verse 5 and 6 are the verses you use when the silence continues, when there is no answer. They're the words you use when you're hanging in midair, when the promises of God seem nowhere, like nothing is going to happen. Somehow, in the midst of all of this, David finds a way to rest in God's love. And I just find that startling. I find it startling because David did it. I find it startling because I've seen it happen in so many Christian people as well. That in the midst of a dark wrestle and an urgent plea, there is a light resting in the goodness of God. I was talking to someone this morning who in a serious life circumstance couldn't pray but found herself singing the glory of God in her heart. What? How does that happen? Let's see what David does here. But, verse 5, but I, it's a defiant, but I trust in your unfailing love. That word unfailing love, it's kind of one that gets repeated throughout the entire Psalter. There's psalms that repeat it every second line. It's one of the richest terms in the psalm. And when you're a Jewish boy and you t- or girl and you, and you take it on your lips, you're referring to that relentless, ruthless, unstoppable love that God has for his people. It, it talks about the God who plunges his hands into the mess of Israel, who calls them to himself and says, I will not let you go even if you throw me to the ground. I will not let you go even if you go to the furthest part of the earth. It is the relentless pursuit of God's people by their God. His faithfulness to them in everything, constantly, unending. Um, uh, David parallels, parallels that with a sense of your salvation, and that's true, because it's this love that meant through all of Israel's history that God continually acts to save them. He saves them because he is faithful, because he is loving, because he is steadfast, because his love can't be stopped. And so again and again he saves them. And David kind of looks at the history of God's love as it is and says, I'm going to trust that. 
this unrelenting God, in all his faithfulness, in all he is. But the remarkable thing here is that this doesn't just remain an external reality. It's not just that he's looking on to God's history out there. He kind of sows it through his soul. He sings it through his soul. He rejoices in God's salvation in his heart. In that place where the desperate wrestle is happening inside him. He begins piece by piece to sing of the love of God. And takes that deep within himself into that place of deep darkness and dryness and distress. There he intimately approaches God and draws close to him. And is able somehow to endure. He even says in verse 6 that he sings to the Lord. Can you imagine singing? Singing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. I prefer the ESV at that point. He has dealt bountifully with me. He has dealt bountifully with me. David feels the love of God deep in his soul. And that is the thing that can carry him through the darkness. But you might be looking at this and saying, well, that's David. But can I really say of me that God has dealt bountifully with me? I mean, look at me. I can't trust as David does. I'm not like him at all. But friends, do remember that you know much more about the relentless love of God than he did. You don't know just about the God who gets his hands in the mess of Israel. God didn't just get his hands dirty in your life. God in the Lord Jesus threw himself into the grave to follow you. He plunged himself into the depth of darkness of the cross to win you back. His trust was perfect where yours is weak. And now everything that was his and is his is yours. You have a place at his table. You have his glory. And his resurrection and new life belong to you. Friend, will you hear? The Lord has dealt bountifully with you. And I don't know what darkness hovers over you. I don't know what is threatening to push in the caves of your soul. But I want to say that the messy love of God, the darkness of the cross, means that you can endure. This is, as we pull this together, where Nicholas goes. Remember at the beginning where he, he questions God and he says, if, how are you gonna allow, why are you allowing all this scraping and tearing? He says, in re- listening for God's response, we strain to hear. But instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, 
we see the tears of God and a new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? In the contours and the landscape of the grief of his life, there was space for honest questioning. But in the end, in the mind of Nicholas, what framed everything, what formed his despair was that vision of the messy love of the cross. And as he allowed that to filter through and in and place into the place where his doubts rose, he was able to endure. I think this psalm and the reality of the Christian gospel enables us a way to neither be crushed by suffering nor to avoid it. We can head on, face it, and open all our anxious questions and darkness and complications, cry out to God and somehow find a peaceful resting in the God who, who follows us into the grave and who bursts out again. Friend, your how long will end, but I do not know how long. But I do know that his love is enough to carry you through. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for King David and his honest questions. We're thankful for these words that you place on our lips to cry out to you in everything that we are. And Father, we pray you would enable us to do that. Lord, I pray for the people here, our brothers and sisters who feel so alone this evening. And Father, I pray that in the depth of their soul, you would tell them that they are not alone. For you walk with them. And your love upholds them. And you will lead them through. In Jesus' name, amen.